Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. What is polyphony? The name, from Greek, means many voices. By definition, polyphony is any piece of music with more than one independent melodic line. Though it is often associated with the heights of the Renaissance and the Western classical tradition, polyphony is much older than all that. Group singing has a lineage that stretches back to our oldest human ancestors, and maybe even further. Traditional vocal polyphony survives in some of the oldest and most isolated cultures on the planet. Cleverly wedged between high mountains, stashed deep in tangled rainforests, on lonely islands, and at the hidden edge of continents. Though we can't be certain of its exact age, the very sound of traditional polyphony has an aura of the ancient. Intense and complex, almost like an auditory magic eye, its voices play hide-and-seek, lay on top of one another, and weave and loop hypnotically, their melodies threads on a loom strung with tones. Sometimes the effect is an ecstatic, almost manic joyfulness, expressing the absolute heights of human experience, harvest, communion, love, and birth. Other times the sound feels crowded, constricted, like a family in close quarters in the final months of winter, like the angry village meeting where everybody speaks at once. And that's the way with polyphony. By nature, its melodies have their own agenda and motivation, and disagree as often as they cooperate. This is the women's folklore ensemble of Staraya Tiritz-Mogora, singing a moksha Mordvin song, lamenting the loss of a young man to conscription. Vai more. Oh, the sea.
Historically, polyphony flows in two different streams, which meet at some historical moments and diverge in others. The earliest transcription of Western monastic polyphonic singing, a chant dedicated to St. Boniface, the patron saint of Germany, was discovered in 2011 in a German manuscript from around 900 AD. If you consult an encyclopedia, you may read that polyphony was invented by Christian monks in the early Middle Ages. You might have heard in learning your music history that the entire canon of Western music grew from that early quote-unquote invention of polyphony in the 9th century. As the story goes, it began with something called organum, based on the melodies of Gregorian chant, but with the addition of the pleasing interval that's created when a man and a boy sing the same melody, each in his own range. Thus, this unique and momentous achievement for Western civilization carried classical music through the Renaissance and into the modern era. But the reality is, as realities often are, much more complex and interesting than that. In fact, polyphony exists in regions across the whole world, from Africa to Asia to Europe to North America, and it's very, very old. It seems polyphony even predates monophony, that is, music with only one melody, in many of the places it exists. Some scholars working now believe it to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of years old. Given how widespread polyphony was in ancient times, it is very likely that medieval Christian monks experimented with polyphonic techniques only after hearing them performed by peasants out working in the fields. In the first decades of ethnomusicological study, known then as comparative musicology, an unexamined belief was responsible for obscuring scholars' view of how widespread vocal polyphony actually was. The assumption was that these traditional, so-called primitive cultures, did not have the intellectual capacity to perform, improvise, and understand such complicated compositions. This belief was so entrenched that when musicologists did encounter reports of the phenomenon, they chalked it up to accident or disbelieved the reports altogether. The field of musicology was largely unaware of the true origins of polyphony until the 1930s and after the Second World War, when the hierarchical comparison of cultures, motivated by the naive assumption that modern cultures were more advanced than traditional ones, was revealed as gravely wrong, both scientifically and ethically. Even since that shift in thinking, awareness of the true ancient origins of vocal polyphony has been slow to build. Of the two streams of vocal polyphony, the professional and the ancient, those areas more influenced by contact with European classical music have polyphonies based on parallel thirds and triads. 
This style of singing falls in line with conventional concepts of beauty and balance in music since the Middle Ages. A lovely example of this style exists in the Swiss Alps in the form of Appenzeller Zoerli, a wordless polyphonic yodel. This is Oz Schuppel with As Zoerli.
more remote mountains and other isolated regions, you'll find those older forms of polyphony that predate the spread of Christianity. Generally, one can identify these ancient polyphonic traditions by the fact that they often include a voice-singing drone, as you might hear in the Balkans and in the Caucasus Mountains. This is sometimes called folk polyphony, and as you might expect, it is a little bit more raucous, more prone to dissonance and improvisation, more human, and I'd say, a little bit more beautiful. Compare the last song, from a region exposed to the Western professional tradition, with the next, an example of dissonance and polyphony first recorded in Latvia in 1895 and performed here by contemporary group Ensemble Sauceus. Traditional polyphony is truly special, and if you take a long view of its history, you will notice one rather alarming trend. 
it is not spreading. In fact, it seems to be disappearing, and rather quickly, too. In the past, singers of folk polyphony learned their songs by ear, embedded in the oral tradition of their community. The songs accompanied the cycles of nature and the rural ways of being from which they grew. These singers, for the most part, are gone, and most of humanity has forgotten these songs in the new global reality of urban living and mass-produced musical culture. The singers you will hear in this episode and the next, some of them ethnomusicologists themselves, have learned these songs from a mix of -of turn-of-the-century field recordings and trips to remote villages in their home countries equipped with microphones, trying to save the songs of elders in these remote places from disappearing forever. Another stunning example of dissonant harmonies can be found in Bulgarian polyphony. This next song, from the second in a series of albums of Bulgarian singing called The Mystery of the Bulgarian Voice, was, interestingly, the inspiration for the theme to Xena Warrior Princess. This is Caval Sviri, or The Flute Plays, by the Bulgarian State Radio and Television Female Vocal Choir. This next song, called Poraj Village, is of a type called a Hovarod, a circle song and dance common in Russia from ancient times to the present. Some of the songs, like this one, are sung with elaborate looping and zigzagging dances, called figure dances. Others tell lengthy stories, with different character parts acted out by a singer in the center of the circle. The practice of singing these songs in clockwise moving circles originated in a pagan Slavic ritual imitation of the sun's movement, The sun was known as Yarilo, a god of fertility whose return was celebrated in the spring with this dance. This particular chovarot is performed by the same group 
as the first song in this episode, the women's folklore ensemble of Staraya Teritsmogora. These singers are from Mordovia, in the middle of the Volga River region of Russia. The Mordvins are an indigenous minority made up of two distinct groups, the Moksha and the Eriza. They belong to the Uralic language family, which includes Finnish, Hungarian, and Estonian. This song comes from the Moksha Mordvins. Lithuania, the largest of the Baltic states, was also the last European nation to convert to Christianity in the Middle Ages. Lithuania's polyphonic tradition is an extremely well-preserved and striking element of its ancient, nature-based spiritual culture. Lithuania's traditional polyphony consists of a chanted song type called the sutartina. The word sutartina derives from a Lithuanian word meaning to agree or to reach accord with another person. This name reflects the distinctive effect sutartinas have. 
Often they build from a single melodic line, in a looping spiral pattern that virtually wraps the listener in a mirrored sphere of sound. For the singer, it takes great concentration to achieve the timing and harmony of the layered sound. And the repetitive, circular texture of the song brings singer and listener both into a trance-like state. Another word for the composition of Sitartinus means to collect, to gather together, like weaving or knitting threads, a spiritually potent practice associated with women that parallels the typically feminine practice of singing Sitartinus. Sitartinus are not alone in having mostly female-gendered singers, however. They share this feature with other folk song in Lithuania, and men by no means were excluded from singing of Sitartinus or other vocal styles. Also, there is plenty of evidence that many, if not most Sutartinus, were previously accompanied by movement of some sort, including a variety of circular and weaving dances, as is suggested by the movement of the harmonies, as well as walking in the rye fields, gathering herbs or working, for example, pulling flax, leading horses, or raking hay. Sutartinus have been described in texts from the 19th century as sounding like the tooting of swans, the garbling of cranes, or hiccuping. These were positive descriptions, mind you. One text from 1849 describes singing of Sutartinus as impossibly beautiful, but demanding tremendous order so that it be tightly wound and nicely clanged. Each composition has a lead singer, and traditionally, the song could go on indefinitely as long as the lead singer was able to compose the next cycle of text. Many Sutartinus are sung in three parts. The first singer or group of singers introduces a line, the second one picks it up midway through the first round, until the first singer or singers enter midway through the part sung by the third group, and so on, in a hypnotic spinning wheel with no defined endpoint. This is Kastartaka, a traditional sutartina by Lithuanian folk group Obelia.
Sutartinus that were recorded in the early 20th century were the product of solo singers, when they had aged considerably and the songs were threatened with extinction. In the 19th century, Baltic scholars had transcribed and described Lithuanian folk songs as well. The intention was to preserve and defend Lithuanian cultural, musical, and spiritual tradition against the dominating influence of Russian, German, and Polish cultures. A unique and precious feature of Lithuanian folk song is its integral and frequent references to nature gods and to nature itself as a sacred force. Many songs refer to trees, especially those songs celebrating seasonal festivities and weddings, both of which deal with cycles of fertility and abundance. In keeping with an animistic view of nature, that is, a belief that all non-human nature is alive and ensouled as humankind is assumed to be, trees are often personified and sometimes addressed directly. This next sutartina addresses the birch tree, its first line asking, Ka palinkai berjalai, why have you inclined, little birch? It goes on, lots of jackdaws flew into the tree, and some hunters are coming. Which bird will we shoot? The one whose legs are yellow, the one whose crest is high, the one whose feathers are colorful. Why have you inclined, little bench? Many sisters have sat down, and some matchmakers are coming. Which sister will we match? The one who has a big hope chest, the one whose eyes are blue. Oh, oh, oh. 
Even though not all polyphonic songs were based in ritual, because the singing of these songs is so rhythmic and cyclical, and the effect so trance-like, one could argue that their performance has never been very far from spiritual practice. Also, because Christianity historically has replaced or removed many native musical traditions upon its arrival in the world's many regions, pre-Christian folk music traditions have been a great inspiration in pagan revival movements. This is especially so in Lithuania, where crusades against the Baltic pagans were declared by the Catholic Church early in the Middle Ages, among other semi-successful attempts to convert the members of this and neighboring nations, though these attempts have never been entirely successful. In a notable synthesis of folk music and folk cultural revival, the founder and high priest of the Baltic native religion called Romyeva, Janus Trinkinus, also led the popular pagan folk band Kulgrinda with his partner Inia Trinkunieni until his death in 2014. Inia is the current high priestess of Romyeva. The band, still active today, has been instrumental in the country's pagan revival. Janus Trinkinus was also a key figure in the resistance to Soviet rule of Lithuania, which persisted until 1991. In the 1980s, Trinkinus, along with the leader of the Latvian native religion, fostered a network of folklore enthusiasts and political activists, secretly organizing summer solstice celebrations and other meetings. The band's very name, Kulgrinda, makes poignant reference to previous historical occupations of Lithuania by invading forces. A Kulgrinda is a secret road built by piling stone or wood on top of the ice on swamps in the winter, so that in the summer the heavy materials sink and form a road under the water, known only to locals and undetectable by invaders, such as the Teutonic Knights in the 13th to 14th century. Many of Kulgrinda's songs are traditional ritual songs. This next song comes from an album entirely made of hymns to the sun, some traditional, and some a synthesis of new and old. This song, in English, The Evening Star Wandered, is performed when the sun is setting. It describes an evening star wandering through the sky and stopping near the moon father. It ends with a promise to pray for the moon and for the sun, who in Lithuanian tradition is feminine. The song is traditional, but it integrates a drone melody borrowed from more Eastern polyphonic traditions. Vakarii. 
That's it for this episode of Fair Folk. Next episode will be part two of the Polyphony series, and we'll cover the fantastic traditions of Russia, of Georgia, and of the Acapygmies of Africa, to name a few. It also features an interview with Georgian ethnomusicologist Joseph Jordania, who organizes a biennial international symposium on traditional polyphony in Tbilisi, Georgia. I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. Fair Folk is a radio show and podcast exploring folk culture and music from around the world. The show is hosted by Smithers Community Radio, CICK 93.9 FM, smithersradio.com, and can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you soon.